if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Romans chapter 11. This morning we will conclude chapter 11. We'll pick up with chapter 12 next week and then take our time out as we go through living on mission together in community. But we're going to conclude this section that we've been in for several weeks, chapters 9 through 11 this morning, with these closing verses, verses 33 through 36. This is Paul's doxology. The word doxa in Greek means glory. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's giving glory to God. He is erupting in worship. And so follow along as I read, beginning in verse 33 through to the end of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the privilege it's been this morning to consider your glory corporately together with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we sing about you and your majesty and your glory and the grace that you've extended to us. What a privilege it is to worship you, not just in song, but with our very lives. What a privilege it is to to live a life of doxology towards you. And God, we ask that you would reveal yourself. The things, Lord, that, that caused the Apostle Paul to erupt in worship, may you cause those things to jump off the pages of Scripture to us so that we too might erupt in unfettered and unrestrained exclamation of your glory. May you draw from us genuine and authentic praise and worship and honor for we know that you deserve it, God. May you receive that from us as we hear from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 33 through 36 that we just read through are a response of worship. It's Paul responding in worship. In fact, many Bible scholars believe that what what we have here in verses 33 through 36 is actually an early church hymn. That this is something that the early church would have, would have sung in worship as they gathered in the early church. And so what causes Paul to erupt in worship at this point in the letter? If this is a response of worship, what is he responding to? What, what is it in this letter that causes Paul to suddenly erupt in this doxology? Some say this is a fitting end to chapters 9 through 11, um, and it certainly is. 
But, but some say that, that what Paul is responding to is, is what he's laid out in chapters 9 through 11. And certainly we've seen, as, as we've walked through that part of this letter, we've seen that chapters 9 through 11 are a distinct group, a distinct grouping in this letter, beginning with Paul's lament in the opening verses of chapter 9 as he laments over the fact that so many, the vast majority of his fellow countrymen, his fellow Israelites are lost and have rejected Jesus as the Messiah and and, and now find themselves outside of the family of God. But he goes on to talk about how God's got a plan not only for Israel but for all those whom he is calling to himself. And he concludes that section with what his plan for Israel is, as he will bring all of his elect, both from ethnic Israel and from the Gentiles, by grace through faith in his son Jesus Christ, to reconcile them back to himself. And so some think then that that what we have here in verses 33 and 36, because it comes at the tail end of that distinct grouping, that what Paul is doing in these closing verses of chapter 11 is a response to what he said in chapters 9 through 11. And I certainly think that that's part of what he's responding to, but I think there's a bigger picture at play here. What comes after these verses, what we'll see beginning next week in chapter 12, even with the very first verse, is that the second half or the remaining portion of this letter is more practical in nature than what we've seen thus far in this letter. We've mentioned a few times already that this is the, this is the normal structure in a general sort of way of most of Paul's letters, especially his letters to the early churches that he has a doctrinal section, usually at the front end of the letter, where he lays out theology. He lays out how we are to believe about, what we are to believe about God, how we are to think about who God is and what he has done. But then at some point, he makes a transition into a more practical section where he says, now, this is how we are to live in light of these truths, in light of this doctrine, in light of these theological truths, this is how we should live then in light of this. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't practical stuff in the doctrinal section. We've seen practical things in chapters 1 through 11. Nor does this mean that there isn't doctrine in the practical section. But in a general sense, this is Paul's general form of most of his letters. And and Romans is a prime example of that. We're concluding chapter 11 this morning, and in chapters 1 through 11, that's, that's the doctrinal portion of this letter. Beginning with chapter 12, he moves into the practical portion. And so what we have here in this doxology, Paul's doxology in verses 33 through 36, is sandwiched right in the middle between those, between the doctrinal and the practical And it's for this reason that I believe the larger picture of what Paul is responding to here in worship in verses 33 through 36 is not just what he has laid out in chapters 9 through 11, but it's everything that he's laid out in the first 11 
chapters. Think about it. He's just spent 11 chapters talking about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've, we've mentioned in here before, this, this is Paul's elongated theological gospel presentation, chapters 1 through 11. And he's laid it out for us in these chapters of what God has done for unworthy rebels like us. He's talked about his grace and his love and his mercy in the face of our sin and our rebellion and our unfaithfulness towards him. He started out in chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in chapter 2, he told us that we have zero righteousness, that we have no righteousness of our own. None is good. No, not one. And that this is bad news for us. It's a problem for us that we don't have any righteousness because we need righteousness if we are going to be in the presence of God in this life or the next. So that was some bad news. And the bad news got even worse in chapter 3. The first half of chapter 3, Paul talked about how not only do we not have righteousness, but we can't get it. We can't earn it by what we do. He says you can't get it. You can't earn it by following the law or by anything that we do. And so bad news gets worse. It, it becomes hopeless that we don't have this righteousness. But then halfway through chapter 3, he says, but there is a righteousness that God has made manifest. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That there is a way for us to be reconciled to God, to be justified and declared righteous before him. And it is by faith in his son Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life for us. He lived perfectly righteous, something that we could never do. And by faith in him, not only we were forgiven of the penalty that we deserve for our sin, but we are given his righteousness as if it is our very own, because at that point it is. And so we're justified. We're, we're declared righteous. And so now the good news is out there. It goes on in chapter 4 to say, this has always been God's plan. And in fact, Abraham himself was justified, not by who he was, not by his circumcision, not by being the father of a great nation, but by faith. Abraham himself was justified only by faith in a coming Savior. And so are we, that that is our only hope. In chapter 5, he explained that, that this is how we can have peace with God. That apart from this, we are enemies of God, he said. But enemies of God, by the grace of God in what Jesus has accomplished on, on the cross, by faith in that, enemies get to be reconciled to the God against whom they are enemies. The good news got even better. In chapter 6, he explained that, that, that we who come to faith in Jesus, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we, we who, are, who are dead in our sins, we become alive unto God. That which was dead is done away with, and, and, and we're given new life in Christ. We are alive unto God. We who were slaves to sin, he says. In other words, we had no choice but to sin. We become now slaves of righteousness, which is what we were created to be. 
In chapter 7, he dealt with some reality, and he said that though we have been released from the law of sin, we still battle with it. We still wage war against it. And sometimes that battle against sin and temptation seems absolutely overwhelming. And we heard the desperation in Paul's voice as he lamented in chapter 7, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things that I know I should do? And then he declares, thanks be to God who gives, through Jesus Christ who gives me the victory. And he goes on from there in chapter 8 to deal with that even more. He says, though we battle with sin and though there is an enemy that seeks to destroy us and devour us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of sin and death has been dealt with through the law of Christ. He admits in chapter 8 that we still experience suffering in this life. He He doesn't gloss over the hard parts of living as a fallen creature in Christ in this world. He says there's still suffering, but the suffering of this life is not worth comparing, he says, to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he concludes chapter 8 by saying that though we battle against sin, though we have an enemy that we battle against, he says, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he deals with chapter 9 and 10 and 11, where Paul deals with the justification of God in determining how he will save mankind, and how he chooses to deal with Israel. And so now we find ourselves at the end of that. And so before Paul launches into the practical, before he says, now in light of those truths, here's how we ought to live. Before he goes there, he erupts in worship. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? And who who has given a gift to him that, that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. He erupts in worship. And this is what we want to unpack this morning. There are three sections to Paul's doxology here. First of all, in verse 33. Paul gives several exclamations. 33 is all about exclamatory about God. He he exclaims about God's wisdom and and the beauty of God's plan in redeeming man, lost mankind back to himself. That's the first section. And then verses 34 and 35 is the second section where Paul asks these rhetorical questions seeking to emphasize man's inability to grasp, to, to figure out, to come to grips with and comprehend God's ways in redeeming man to himself. And then the third section is in verse 36 where Paul makes these declarations about the ultimacy of God that leads him to that final and firm doxology to him be glory forever. So I want to look at each one of these Section so that we might see the content of Paul's doxology, the content 
of his worship. Not the object of his worship. The object of his worship is God. But what is it about God that leads Paul to erupt in worship? So there's three components of Paul's doxology in these three sections. The first component of Paul's doxology, like like we said, is is found in verse 33, where Paul gives these exclamations about the wisdom of God and about the wisdom of his sovereign plan to redeem lost humanity to himself. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Do you hear his exclamation? That's what we ought to hear here. That Paul is exclaiming something about the depth of these things. That they are too deep to measure. That they are, in fact, unfathomable. We can't reach the bottom of these things. So what is it that is that deep? He says, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The riches of God, the wisdom of God, and the knowledge of God are too deep to measure. Now, I think we should note here, because you might have a different translation of the English Bible in your hands, a different English translation than what I'm using. I'm using the ESV. There are lots of other faithful translations. Uh, But most other English translations treat God's riches not as a separate attribute for which Paul is praising God here, but instead a characteristic of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. And so, for example, the New American Standard of the King James Version will say, um, we'll talk about both the wisdom, both the, the, how, how deep are the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, suggesting that perhaps what Paul is commending here is the, the, are, are the riches of God's wisdom and the riches of God's knowledge. That there is a richness to God's wisdom, that there's a richness to his knowledge that is too deep to fathom. And I think that's a very acceptable rendering of the Greek here. But the grammar also allows for us to understand God's riches as a separate yet linked attribute of God for which Paul is praising him in this section. And that's what the ESV does. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I think in light of how Paul has been using that very word, the riches of God, already in this letter, particularly in the section that we're just coming out of, chapters 9 through 11, I think that warrants, for me at least, a preference that that he's using God's riches here as a separate attribute for which he praises him. In chapter 9, as Paul is talking about the election of some and the non-election of others, he says in verse 23 that this was in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. In chapter 10, he said that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then in chapter 11, earlier in chapter 11, verse 12, he says, now if their trespass, speaking about the trespass of ethnic Israel, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And when we dealt with those verses, we talked about how 
When Paul refers to God's riches, the riches of God, he's not, he's not referring to material blessing. He's referring to the spiritual blessing of knowing God, of being able to relate to God and have a relationship with him and be reconciled to him. And so God's riches here that enable that are referring to God's grace and God's mercy and the glory of who he is. And Paul's exclamation here is that the riches of God's grace and the riches of God's mercy are so very deep that they can't be measured. They cannot be fathomed. They are too deep to to be measured. So deep that you and I will never get to the bottom of them. Do you know the depth of God's grace and mercy? Have you experienced just a portion of the unfathomable depth of God's grace and mercy? We see it. We see it displayed in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God given to us, sent to earth to live among fallen humanity and then die for fallen humanity, die for rebels like us. We don't deserve that. That's what makes it grace. That's why we call it amazing grace because the depth of that grace is something that we will never get to the bottom of. Oh, the depth of the riches of his mercy and grace. Paul also explains here the depth, the unfathomable depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. Just as we could never plumb the depths of God's mercy and grace, neither can we depth, can we plumb the depths of his wisdom and his knowledge. And church, by the way, we we, we are to not just know this stuff in a head knowledge way, Okay, little parentheses here. This is not about us coming to an intellectual understanding of these attributes of God, but instead allowing our affections to be wrapped up in these truths because that's what Paul is doing. Oh, the depths, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. This isn't our knowledge of God. This is his knowledge of us. This is his wisdom. And just as with his grace and mercy, it knows no boundary. It is too deep to be measured. Our God is omniscient, we say. He knows everything. He knows your heart and mind. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He knows not just what we do, But why we do it? Oh, the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom. God always knows the right thing to do. He always knows the right decision to make. He always knows the right turn to make. He never gets lost. He never needs GPS. How unlike him are we? Our wisdom and knowledge is so limited and so finite. We need GPS for everything. Not just to be able to make our way geographically. But we need something akin to GPS 
in all areas of life, relationally, intellectually, academically, emotionally, vocationally, and spiritually, we always seem to lose our way in all areas of life because our wisdom and our knowledge is so very limited and so very finite. But God's is infinite. There is no boundary to his knowledge. He knows everything about everything. His wisdom extends from eternity to eternity. And it is not bounded by time or space. His wisdom is so far beyond our ability to even comprehend his wisdom. It is unfathomable and too deep to measure. But his wisdom and his knowledge converge with the depth of, of his the riches of his grace and, and mercy, they, that they converge into his judgments and, and his ways. And so Paul also exclaims here, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. His judgments are his decisions, the things that he determines to do, his plan and his will. Paul says that they are unsearchable, which means that they have the quality of being outside the scope of our understanding. He says his ways, which refers to what he does, his actions, they're inscrutable. The New American Standard says, translates that word unfathomable. The NIV says they're beyond tracing out. King James says they're past finding out. This, this word comes from a root word which means to track. And so what Paul is saying here is that, God's, that this is a characteristic of God's ways that make them beyond tracking. Unsearchable and inscrutable are, are pretty close to being synonyms. And so Paul is saying here that, that God's decisions, his, his intentions, his, his determinative will, his plans and his ways and his actions and, and what he does, they're, they're beyond tracing out. They're, they are, as the NAS says, unfathomable. Now this doesn't mean that they're a mystery in the sense that we can't know them. We can know them because... We have God's word that reveals them to us. God has revealed these things to us. This is what Paul has been doing in chapters 1 through 11. Revealing God's ways. Revealing, revealing God's dealings with mankind. And God's plan for rescuing sinners and reconciling sinners and justifying sinners. But can we really comprehend the mind of God in all of these things? Of course we can't. Can we really trace out the how and the why of God's amazing grace? No, it is much deeper than that. Can we fully come to grips with, with how a glorious, eternal, and holy, sovereign creator God could consider 
the likes of us, much less save those who had rebelled against him. And to do so by sending his son and offering him up to die in our place. Can we fully grasp that grace and that plan? No, we cannot. That is why Paul is exclaiming here. We cannot fully comprehend that. We, We cannot plumb the depths of that grace and that mercy and that love. We cannot fully track with the wisdom of God. It's it's past finding out that God would do this and rescue sinners like us. And yet it is so. And at the consideration of that, Paul erupts in worship. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. The second component of Paul's doxology is found in verses 34 and 35, where Paul asks three rhetorical questions, and he does so in order to emphasize our inability to comprehend the wisdom of God's sovereign plan. And God's sovereign ways. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So these are three rhetorical questions. And with a rhetorical question, there's always an assumed answer. And the assumed answer for these rhetorical questions is all the same. And it is nobody, no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Nobody. Nobody has ever and will ever fully know and grasp the mind of God. Why? Because it is unsearchable. It is unfathomable. Who has been his counselor? This is, this is a quote from Isaiah 40 that, that, that we read from earlier. And from Job, we hear the, the heart of Job crying out to God in these, in these kinds of rhetorical questions. Who has been his counselor? It's almost comical when we see it laid out, isn't it? Who has been God's counselor? Who is the person who gives counsel to God? As if God is going to lay on that couch and someone's going to pull up a chair next to him and help him figure things out. Silly, right? Nobody. Nobody is his counselor. But don't we sometimes act like his counselor? Sometimes we think we know what is best and we want to help him out, tell him what's best for us and tell him what he ought to do. Sometimes I think if we would listen to the way we pray, we might hear ourselves talking to God as if we were informing him of the situation. God, I need to talk to you about something. I need to tell you about something that's happened at work. I need to tell you about something that's happening with my kids. He knows all that. He knows that so much better than we do. And he knows it before we do. We're not coming to him in prayer in order to give him counsel about what he should do. We're the ones who need a counselor, right? That's why he gives us, part of why he gives us the Holy Spirit as our counselor. He doesn't need a counselor, we do. Nobody gives counsel to God. Verse 35, he says, "Who, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid in return. And again, the assumed answer is, well, nobody 
Our, our gifts to God, our service to God, in no way put him in obligation to us in any way whatsoever. Don't obligate God to do anything for us. Again, this sounds absurd when we lay it out. When we serve God, it doesn't put God in debt to us. We are indebted to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And yet, have you ever met someone and it seems like they feel like God owes them something? I've served God for 30 years. I've given up so much for his kingdom. I've been so faithful in Sunday school attendance. I've gone on a bunch of mission trips. I can't even count them all. I've sacrificed so much financially to give to the Lord, etc., etc., etc. I've done so much for God. When is he going to do something for me? Well, there's an answer to that. There's a threefold answer to that. To that kind of mentality and perspective that sees our service to him as putting him in a place where he owes something to us. First of all, God doesn't operate like that. God operates on the basis of grace, not quid pro quo. It's not, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Our relationship with God in that sense is unilateral, not bilateral. Not if we will do something for, for him, he will do something for us. He operates with us on the basis and the economy of grace. Second, second answer to that kind of mentality is that we don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve anything from God except eternal judgment. That's what we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against a holy God. We don't deserve anything less than that. And then the third way, third part of a threefold answer to that kind of perspective of God is if you want to know what God has done for you, look no further than the cross. Look no further than Calvary. Everything God does for us, anything God does for us, puts us in debt to him. But nothing we do for him ever puts him in debt to us. He owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. Everything. That ought to cause us to erupt in worship, church. In verses 34 and 35, what, what Paul is doing, he's, he's elevating God and he's lowering man. This is what Paul said elsewhere, right? That, that, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. He must, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist, right? He must increase, I must decrease. Paul is elevating God and he's lowering mankind. And that's always the right posture for worship. If, if our doctrine does the opposite, if it elevates man and in any way lowers God, that is not the right posture for worship. That is the right posture for self-worship, not a worship of a holy, majestic, righteous, loving, gracious, merciful, glorious God. 
Let us elevate God in our theology and lower us to our rightful place before this God so that we may bow in humble awe and reverence before him. The third component of Paul's doxology is found in the first half of verse 36 where Paul makes three declarations about the ultimacy of God. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So Paul is talking about all things here, which includes all things, everything, everything that has been made, including us. And he says three things about them. First of all, all things are from God, meaning he is our creator, and he's the only creator. He is the sole creator. Because he says, all other things, including us, are from him. God alone is self-sufficient. God alone is independent. No one else is. Nobody else is. Nothing else is. God alone is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything or anyone to exist. And that makes him different from everything and everyone else in all of the universe. Everything else had a beginning, including us, including the chair, including the ant, including the stars in the universe. And the beginning of everything other than God is himself. We are from him. Secondly, he says all things are through God, which speaks to the ongoing existence of all things not just their creation, but their ongoing existence. So, so God is not just the source of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the source of all, and he is the sustainer of all. We are dependent beings. And we are dependent on God for everything. Everything that we need in order to be sustained in every way comes from God. Everything that we need, all things come from him. We are dependent on him for both the air that we breathe and the ability to breathe it. We are dependent on him for the food that we eat and the ability to eat it. For the clothes on our back, for the roof over our head. We are dependent on him for everything. We're dependent on him for the peace that we need in the chaos of this life filled with sin. We are dependent on him for the comfort that we need in the face of suffering in a fallen world. We are dependent on him for the hope that we need that he's got our future in his hands. Everything that we need to be sustained is in him and comes from him. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father, comes, down, comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no change or shifting shadow. 
And third, he says, not only are all things from him and through him, but there are to him. Which means that all things exist for the glory of God, including us. Especially us. Who are made in his image. Who are made to reflect his glory. So our very lives, our very existence is to have a direction. And that direction is to him. I didn't have the privilege, the honor of serving in the military. Many in this room did. My son does. Many of you had the privilege of meeting my son um, last Sunday. He and my wife are on a trip this weekend, but he's home on deployment, home from deployment. And, um, and I've had the privilege of attending um, most of many of his uh, graduations and ceremonies. And one of the things that they do at the ceremonies, obviously, is they salute the commanding officer. Um, and the salute is a, it's obviously, it's a show of respect. It's a show of deference to one's superior. And one of the things that they always do when they salute is they, they turn their head and they face the one to whom they are saluting. If they're saluting a, a, an officer, they, they, they turn their face and their eyes to face the officer. If they're saluting the flag, they turn their head and their eyes to face the flag. And church, when we live our lives quorum Deo, before the face of God, we figuratively turn in his direction and live our lives as a salute. We serve at his pleasure and we serve for his glory. All things are to him. So after exclaiming in verse 33, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, the depth of his grace and mercy and glory. And and after underscoring in verses 34 and 35, our inability to comprehend the bigness of God and his ways. And after declaring that all things are for him and through him and to him, Paul concludes with the doxology, to him be glory forever. Amen. And after considering all that Paul has considered in chapters 1 through 11 about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, his son, that must be the only conclusion that we can make. To him be glory forever. That's what he deserves. Glory from us and from everything that he has created forever. Two thoughts that I want to leave you with as we close. As we consider these closing verses of chapter 11, I want us to note again the placement of Paul's doxology in this letter. Right between doctrine and practice. One of the things that we will talk about next week and in the subsequent weeks as we work through chapters 12 through 16 is that we cannot separate it from chapters 1 through 11. Doctrine informs practice. It must. It must or else it's just 
empty knowledge. And right doctrine not only must result in right practice, but it will. It will, necessarily. If we have right doctrine, it will result in right practice, but it will also result in right worship. Note the placement of the doxology. It's no coincidence. Doctrine will result in practice, but it will also result in worship. Remember, this is Paul's response of worship. He has laid out the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of grace, and in unfettered, unsolicited, unrequired fashion, Paul erupts in worship. If your life isn't characterized by this kind of reverence and awe, or to the degree that your life is not characterized by this kind of reverence and awe of God and His glory, I want to caution you not to skip into the practical. Don't skip over the doctrine into the practical. Don't look for that kind of reverence and awe in the practical exhortations. Also, don't just look for it in experience. Something I think our 21st century church in America settles for so often is a false and man-made representation of the reverence and awe of a glorious God. We cannot go to chapters 1 through 11 and see the majesty of who God is and what his ways are and then erect an experience that is going to adequately represent that. To the degree that our lives aren't characterized by this kind of reverence and awe that we see Paul responding in, dive back into doctrine. Seek to know God biblically. Get your theology right, and when you do, you won't be able to stop yourself from erupting in worship. Second thing I want to leave you with this morning is that this idea of worship is not so much about what we do as it is about who we are. This is more about identity than action. We are worshipers. This is who God made us to be. And we're, as worshipers, we're going to give worship to something or someone. We're going to live a doxology in a direction of something or someone. It's just part of our DNA as human beings made in the image of God. We are worshipers. And God knows this, and this is why the first two of the Ten Commandments given to the Israelites is God directing the Israelites where to direct their worship and where not to direct their worship. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make an image of another god and have an idol before me. We're made to worship God. Our lives were intended to be a doxology to Him. We messed that up. We mess that up with our sin and our rebellion against God. And now as a result of that, we live our lives to worship something other than God. And usually that's self. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
to live the perfectly righteous life that we could never live and to die on a cross in our place so that those who trust in Christ alone would be forgiven, would be imputed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and among many other things that we might be remade and restored to be the worshipers of God that we were created to be in the first place. So we were made to be worshipers of God and by God's grace in Jesus Christ, we have been remade once again to be worshipers of God. It's not so much about what we do. It's about who we are. And so are you a worshiper of God? If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from the penalty of your own sin, the judgment that you deserve because of your sin and rebellion against God, we all owe that because of our sin. But if you've not placed your faith in Jesus as your only hope for rescue from that, if you've placed your hope or any fraction thereof in your own church attendance or your own good works or your own performance for God, other than Christ alone, crucified on the cross, risen from the dead, then you are not a worshiper of God. But God has you here this morning to hear the good news so that you might respond in faith and be remade, not just forgiven, as glorious that is, not just imputed with the righteousness of Jesus so that you are justified to be in his presence, but so that the deepest desire of your heart that you don't even know is the desire of your heart, the thing that will make you complete is to be remade into a worshiper of God, for that is who he created you to be. Will you trust in Christ as your only hope so that he might receive the worship that he is due from you? And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are, no matter what you do, you are a worshiper of God. Are you living out of that identity or are you living out of the identity that simply can't worship God? You are a worshiper of God. And just like the song that we sang earlier, Come before God. Not an experience, not, not, not something that, that, that man presents, but come and behold God as he is revealed on the pages of Scripture and you will erupt out of that identity as a remade worshiper of God and you will give glory to God and your life will be a doxology lived in the direction of this glorious God. He deserves that. So let's do that. Let's pray.